and we are in Malachi chapter 1. Read with me this passage, uh, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord of hosts? Cursed be the cheat who has, made, who has a male in his flock, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray together. Lord, we are here before you this morning in need of your grace, in need of your spirit to work in our hearts, bringing truth and grace to bear in our hearts and minds and lives. Pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding of your word and that this understanding would fuel worship and passion to know you and to make you known, Lord. I pray for your help, both as I speak and as we listen, Lord. May you be honored, may you be glorified, and may your name be praised in our hearts and through our mouths. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to read for you two lists of names. And I want you to think about how you would characterize the difference between these two lists. So what I'm asking is, what do the names in the first list have in common with one another? And what do the, the names in the second list have in common with one another? So that's the question. Here's the lists. First list. Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, and Attila the Hun. That's the first list. Second list, Mahatma Gandhi, Rosa Parks, and Winston Churchill. Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, Attila the Hun, Mahatma Gandhi, Rosa Parks, and Winston Churchill. Now, 
if you thought something like or some variants of, well, the first list are people who are known for doing terrible and atrocious things in the world, terrorists, murderers, uh, and the second list are people that are known for positive things in society, having advanced society in one way or another. If you thought something along those lines, just raise your hand. Just want to get an idea. Okay. Uh, if that's what you thought, then unfortunately you're wrong. If you remember, the question was, what do these names have in common? And the answer I was looking for was that the names in the first list start with a vowel, and the names in the second list start with a consonant. Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, Attila the Hun, Mahatma Gandhi, Rosa Parks, and Winston Churchill. So, sorry, no points for those who rose their hand. But, of course, though technically true, I'm not being entirely serious. If you, if you had that thought that I suspected you might have had, then you're right in understanding that names are much more than merely a combination of letters put together that make a certain sound when we pronounce them. What is in a name? All that a person is, is contained in their name. So when a name is said, all that we know about that person, their attributes, their deeds, their good and bad qualities, their personality, their appearance, all those things come to mind when we hear a name. And the same is true with the name of God. In the scriptures, God declares his name to be Yahweh, or the Lord. He explains that he is the self-existent one who has no basis for his attributes in anyone outside of himself. He is the definition and embodiment of all excellencies and perfections. The sound of his name is meant to awaken in us the highest thoughts of praise and worship. His name is the name that is above all names, the scripture says. His name is pure and holy and spotless. His name communicates his glory and perfections. So what happens when God puts his name on a people? Or more specifically, what happens when God puts his name on a priesthood? There is laid upon them at that moment a responsibility to uphold, to represent, to imitate and commend all that his name encompasses. They are called to have an absolute allegiance to his name above all things and above all people. And that's exactly what we see in the establishment of the Levitical priesthood way earlier in the Bible in Exodus chapter 32. So I'm going to read for you where the Levitical priesthood was established. Exodus 32 from verse 25 says this, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord of God, says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro 
from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. There was called upon these, uh, these Levitical priests an allegiance to God above all. And when others would go astray, they were called to remain faithful. And it's due to that allegiance that a few chapters later, along with the rest of the priestly garments, there was made for them a plate to be fastened to their turban with the engraved words, holy to the Lord, or set apart to the Lord. It was to be their life calling to stand in the midst of the people, set apart unto the Lord as a bodily manifestation of his worth and of his supremacy. They were to instruct and lead the people according to this calling. And in chapter 2 of Malachi, the book we're looking at today, it is said that the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Even if no one else decides to live for God, the priests were called to remain faithful. And in the book of Malachi, we find ourselves almost a thousand years later after the ordination of the Levitical priesthood. Uh, and it's after a time of exile when the Israelites were carried away and subjected to other nations as judgment for their idolatry. And now here in the book of Malachi, God has graciously restored them to their land and once again called them to know and worship him as his people. So for 70 years, the Israelites experienced the terrible consequences of their wandering hearts and now have the opportunity to return and renew their commitment to God. The book of Malachi, however, is a sad depiction of a people that, though they have been shown extraordinary grace, still turn their back on the Lord and do not relate to him in a way that he commands and that he deserves. In our passage in particular, God takes up his case against the priests of Israel, the ones that are meant to be the spiritual leaders, and they have fallen far from their high calling, whose ultimate allegiance is meant to be to God and who spend themselves calling the people to faithfulness. We see quite the opposite. Instead of honoring the name of God, they despise it. So look with me at verse 6 uh, in Malachi chapter 1. God asks the questions to expose that they despise him. They despise him inwardly. God says, where is my honor? Where is my fear? O priests who despise my name. So inwardly, there is this despising of God. And then outwardly also, by their action, God calls them out. In verse 7, they are offering polluted food upon God's altar. Verse 8, they're offering blind animals in sacrifice. They're offering those that are lame or sick. In verse 13, they bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. So they're despising God by their actions and also by their words. Verse 7, 
by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Verse 12, they say that the Lord's table is polluted and its food may be despised. Verse 13, you say what weariness this is. And if you're like me, it's at this time that you watch this unfold from the sideline and you gasp that the people who have been shown such favor by God would have so low a view of him and offer such pitiful offerings. And if that's your impression as it was mine when first reading this, then you and I alike are failing to recognize something. We are not on the sideline watching this unfold. We are not innocent bystanders just taking notes and making observations. We are those priests. There hasn't been a day in your life or mine whether prior to your conversion or since, that you have offered up to God an offering of obedience or sacrifice that in and of itself has been anything more than a blind or lame or sick animal. Psalm 150 says that we are to praise the Lord according to his excellent greatness. So there's, there's meant to be an equal correlation between the greatness of God and the praises we offer him. Praise the Lord according to his excellent greatness. When was the last time that you would say that has been true of your praise? When was the last time you or I worshipped and loved God as he ought to be worshipped and loved? When was the last time that your words about him have encapsulated the greatness that he is? When was the last time that you shared the gospel or spoke about God in a way that is fitting for the great God that you're speaking of? Well, we wouldn't dare say that we ever have. We continually fall short in our efforts to do so. And so, as we move now to see how God responds to this priesthood who despise his name, we must not think that we are an innocent third party kind of watching from the sidelines and observing, but know that we are these accused priests. We are the ones who likewise fall short of honoring God as he is worthy of. So how does God respond to their offerings? How does he respond to the inadequate offerings that we muster up and bring to him? Well, in this passage, God rejects their offering. Look in verse 10 with me. Uh, God says, shut the doors. Do not kindle fire on my altar. I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept an offering from your hand. In verse 14, cursed be the cheap. Kind of as an imagery, we see here this relationship between the priests and how they are treating their God, the one that they are meant to honor and serve, we see something portrayed that is similar to an unhealthy or a poisonous relationship between a man or a woman. So think, for example, a boyfriend taking advantage of the fact that his girlfriend has a low self-esteem. Her self-image is marred and it's broken. and So he takes advantage of it and he abuses her and he mistreats her. And he knows that she will never leave him because he figures that she can't attract anyone better. That's the view that the priests have of God in this passage. 
Just throw in the leftover meat. Just give him the lame and the sick animals that we can't get any money for anyways. He'll take it. I mean, he isn't getting any offerings from anyone else. He should be happy with the accommodations we're making to his requests at all. I wonder how many there are today that call themselves Christians yet have this same view. I'll give him two hours on a Sunday morning. Midweek Bible study? Sorry, I've got something else scheduled. Evangelism? I can't do that either. People might think I'm some kind of Jesus freak or something like that. Personal Bible study and intercession? I would, but I start work really early and don't have much time for that. Sacrificial giving to the church and to the poor and to the nations? Won't that affect my retirement plan? Fasting? Come on, this is just getting crazy. What does God do with those who, like the priests of Malachi's day, are half-hearted in their devotion and, and lukewarm in their obedience to him? According to Revelation 3 and this passage, he rejects them. These aren't devoted followers of Christ. Christians are those that see in God someone consuming, someone worthy of their best and of their all. This is what God sees when he looks at himself, and this is why he refuses to receive these half-hearted offerings from the priests. So let's look here at God's reasoning. He, he rejects them. His name is despised by the priesthood. He rejects their offering, and here now we look at his reasoning. In verse 11, God says this, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And in verse 14, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So he's saying two things here. He's saying, I am great, my name is great, and my name will be great among the nations. In and of myself, God is saying here, I am great. I am the only being in the universe that possesses intrinsic greatness. I am supreme. I am worthy of all. I am the fountain of living water from which all rivers of loveliness flow. I am the ocean to which all streams of devotion should be aimed. I am the one who knits in the mother's womb. I am the one who gives power to the faint and strength to the weak. I am the bread of life. I am the sun from which every beam of glory shoots out. I am the sun around which every planet orbits. I am the one who holds the waters of vast oceans in the palm of my hand. I am the one who weighs mountains on a scale. I am the architect of the universe, the designer of the atom. I am the one who laid the foundations of the earth. I am the core of the, uh, of the earth that causes gravity to be and holds all things together. I am he who dwells in the high and lofty place. I am the rain that falls from the sky, giving nourishment to the root. More than that, I am the root from which every branch receives its sustenance. What's more, I am the fruit that is born upon the branches. From me and through me and to me are all 
things. I am a great God, a great king, a great father, and a great master. My name is great and will be great. There is coming a day when my intrinsic greatness will be ascribed greatness. This is why he says my name will be great among the nations. Where the, greatest, where the greatness that is in God will be perceived by a people and they will ascribe to him the glory and honor and praise that is due to him and offer to him a pure offering of worship and sacrifice. But how can this be? How can any human ever offer to God a pure offering? How can fallen people bring to God an offering that he accepts and is pleased with? We can't. No one can. But herein lies the great news. God himself will. So Isaiah prophesied in chapter 7 of Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And 400 years after Malachi spoke these convicting words to the fallen and failing priesthood, we read these words in Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as she considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Knowing that a fallen race could not offer up to God an acceptable offering, God in his grace came in the person of his son to be the acceptable offering. God gave up the son of his delight. God gave up the son of his delight to ransom an unworthy people like you and I. Seeing that man could never be able to offer up a sacrifice that was necessary, he sent his son to be that sacrifice. So the failure of the law to make perfect those who sought God through it set the stage for a more glorious and more perfect way of reconciliation to God to be established. So I'm going to read an extended passage here from Hebrews 10. It shows the relationship between the failure of the priesthood in the Old Testament and the success of of Jesus Christ, our high priest, the one who established the new covenant. Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, uh, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. God rejects the offerings of the priests here in the book of Malachi because he knows who he is and he knows his worth. He knows the greatness of his name. But he also rejects their offering because he sees a day coming, a day that he has planned from all of eternity when a people will be ransomed and purified by the blood of Jesus, the true high priest, the faithful high priest. And in his name, their offerings will be acceptable and accepted. Brothers and sisters, we are living in that day. We are living as beneficiaries of the faithful and true high priest. And so I want to consider with you a few implications uh, that we see from Malachi. First one is this. The passage that we read ought to breed in us a deep humility before God. Knowing that your offerings and my offerings are rejected outside of the sanctifying grace that the blood of Jesus exerts upon them ought to make us humble people. There is not one person in this room that has ever in their life done an act that if not purified by Christ's blood would be acceptable to God. So where is boasting, as Paul asks? Well, it is in our weakness, according to 2 Corinthians. It's in Christ, according to 1 Corinthians. It's in the grace of God in 1 Corinthians. It's in the fact that by God's grace, we have come to know God, according to Jeremiah 9. So all of these are summed up and only true because Christ took the cross upon himself. So Paul would say in Galatians 6, far be it for us to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to us and we to the world. These truths ought to make us deeply humble before God. Secondly, there are implications here for our own sanctification. I want you to see this connection. God says in this passage that his name will be great around the globe. But how will that happen? God says, my name will be praised, will be feared among the nations. Incense will be burned unto me from all peoples. How will that happen? It's as people like you and I see his greatness and a passion for making him known spreads through us. That's how the name of God spreads around the world. People in love with God tell others, who then tell others until all the world has heard. And it's also through that same beholding of God 
and his greatness that we grow in holiness and reflect the character of Jesus more fully. And so it is in God's confident declaration that his name will be great among the nations that we have an implied promise from God that we will see more of him, will grow spiritually, and will have victory over the sin that dulls our hearts. His name goes to the ends of the earth through a people that behold him and love him and declare him. And so if the end is confidently settled in God's mind, that his name will be praised, then so will the means to that end be accomplished. A, a rising up of a passionate people who know their God and love their God. There's also implications here for our evangelism. Ignorance is not the deepest reason that people don't trust in Christ. It is because like these priests here in Malachi 1, they despise his name. It's a heart issue. It's an animosity towards God that keeps people from embracing Christ and his gospel. And so there is need to inform people of the objective truths of the gospel, but their problem is deeper. It's a, it's a hatred. It's an animosity. And so in evangelism, we must do more than merely communicate doctrines and verses that sum up the gospel message. We must labor to uphold the loveliness and the greatness of this Savior that we are commending to people. We must set our hearts ablaze through the word of God and coming to know him. And as we speak to others, it's more than just words or a Roman's road or truths from the Bible, but we labor to demonstrate the worthiness and the beauty of our God by the way that we act and by the way that we speak in our evangelism. Third implication is for yours and mine, our lack of zeal. Lack of desire to perform the outward duties of worship and obedience, like we see here with these priests in Malachi who despise God's name and say it's a weary thing to offer sacrifices to God. That lack of desire should be our cue to examine our hearts and see where we are believing wrong things about God. Lack of worship in life is a result of lack of belief in God's goodness and his worthiness. The solution must go as deep as the problem, and so I must address my beliefs and be renewed in my knowledge of God that my thinking might be adjusted and my actions would follow. And one last one, implications for missions, God's mission in this world. Before Christ came to this earth, God spoke with absolute certainty that his name would be great among all nations. There has never been a doubt in God's mind about how this whole thing will end. The Lamb of God will receive the reward for his sufferings, which is the nations, which is the world. The innumerable company of people from all nations and tribes and tongues and peoples will proclaim the praises of the risen Christ. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. There is no doubt in God's mind about these things. And so let there not be any doubt in ours. Labor towards the exaltation of Christ in your sphere of influence and do so with absolute confidence that God himself is working in and through you to accomplish his good purposes in this world and that he will be successful. In this passage, we see the Old Testament priests 
and through our resemblance to their failures, both their and our disqualification to be priests unto the Lord. But praise be to God that the Bible doesn't end with the book of Malachi. God has provided for us a high priest who upheld the law in every way that we have failed to. And in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus made a way for our offerings to be accepted by God and now be a new covenant community of priests who, according to 1 Peter 2, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so let us depend on the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and follow the priestly example of Christ in our living. In your failures, look to the perfect offering that Christ has made and there find your sufficiency. In your weakness, look to the broad shoulders of your Savior who is able to carry you. In your dullness, behold the greatness of your God and let your heart be warmed to him. And in your doubt, look to the confidence of God's word that he will make you someone who will one day soon offer up a pure, unspotted offering of worship for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Lord, we are dependent upon you for every good thing. You are the one from whom all blessings flow. You are the one who gives life and breath to every being who upholds the world by the word of your power. And so, Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts to reveal the greatness of your name, that at the name of Jesus, our hearts would race, that our affections would rise, that our passions would Ignite. Keep us, O oh Lord, from a common relationship with you and your name. Grant us to esteem you above all things, desire you above all things, live for you above all things, and worship you above all things. In Jesus' name, amen.